Welcome to AIC Clinician Corner. I'm Dr. Renee Rosado. I'm Courtney Neustadt, LICSW. On to today's podcast, we will be talking about sexual assault awareness as April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And with me, I have two guest speakers. I have Giovanna Worthy from the YWCA and Jill Kelly, who was a former AIC employee. Jill, would you like to introduce yourself? As Courtney mentioned, I'm Jill, and I used to work at AIC about two years ago now. I was the area coordinator over in Edgewood complex and oversaw Acorn Heights. So AIC has a special place in my heart. I moved on to pursue my passion of sexual violence prevention full-time. So I worked at Dean College as their sexual violence prevention and education coordinator. I oversaw a grant that they have from the Office of Violence Against Women that seeks to end, address, and prevent sexual violence on college campuses. And actually next week, I'm starting a brand new position at the College of the Holy Cross as their assistant director for prevention and education. So this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation today. Thank you. Giovanna, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you so much. My name is Giovanna Worthy, and I'm with the YWCA of Western Massachusetts. I'm currently a prevention instructor for the iMatter Network, which is a subdivision of the YWCA that focuses on the linkages between intimate partner violence and infection rates. So I'm very excited to be part of this conversation and talk about the intersectionality of uh, IPV and other instances of interpersonal violence. To start the conversation, let's just talk about why it's important to have these roles in our communities. I think it's important because just having that support available in there is making all the difference in how survivors of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, or any other type of interpersonal violence. It's important to have that support there and to have as much of it as we can have different options for people. Some people may be more comfortable with someone that has a closer identity to them. As a woman of color, this is something that we have a discussion about regularly. It's very important to have help and have have support in the communities and as much of it as possible, particularly in communities where maybe those resources historically have not been available to them. My work is specifically with college students doing prevention. And I think that's particularly important because On college campuses, there are high rates of sexual violence by nature of how college campuses are set up. Typically, you have students coming from all over the country with different backgrounds, different knowledge, and they're living alone for the first time on their own, experimenting with drugs or alcohol, sometimes experimenting with their own sexualities and what sex means for them. There's power dynamics on college campuses between upperclassmen and first-year students as well as athletic teams, or if there's fraternities and sororities. So prevention work on college campuses is very, very important so that people can be aware of these things and have the skills to intervene if they see harmful things from happening, as well as develop their own ability to have self-determination with how they want to engage with sex. So that's kind of the things that I focus on when I'm doing prevention work is 
all of those dynamics and how I can empower students to make the best decisions for themselves and for their communities. One of the things that they highlight specifically is that data suggests that college-age survivors are more likely to disclose to a friend or someone within their age group as well um, when they go through a traumatic experience. And the way that that first response goes, how someone responds to this reveal can really impact their ability to, or their desire to seek further help or seek professional help if that's something that they're comfortable with, or even just who else they may tell in the future, regardless of it is a professional help or not. So the first person they tell can be very powerful indicator of this. And I think it's very important that even if college students aren't going into college thinking that this is something that they are gonna have to worry about, even as a bystander, they're able to intervene in a way that can have an impact, even if they aren't a licensed professional in this field. That's a great point. How do you suggest that people react to someone telling them something like this that's so difficult to hear? I think there are some general guidelines that students or anyone can follow. You don't have to be a professional to respond appropriately to instances like this. One thing that could help that may take a little more digging is just being aware of local resources that you may be able to go to, whether it's on college campuses or a local agency that may be able to help as well, such as the YWCA. Maybe something along the lines of offering to go with them if that's something that they would feel comfortable with, or even just in the conversation itself, letting that survivor know that you believe them what happened wasn't their fault, even just not asking too many uh, details or any content related questions, just giving them the chance to reveal what they are comfortable with revealing. I think the, one of the most important parts of it is just asking what they need rather than telling them what to do on that situation. Really giving that survivor the space to reveal what they have been going through or what they went through and even if it's just a time to vent and give them that space. And then eventually they may decide that they want to seek further help. But that can be a very important first step in that recovery process. You brought up so many good points. Just to take a step further with that, giving the survivor the space to process and allow them to make the decision. Oftentimes, you know, as someone who's hearing someone else's story, it can be hard. We want to say like, oh, I want you to get help. I want you to you know, be able to heal from this or get justice from this. But when someone experiences sexual violence, power and control is taken away from them. So it's really, really important to allow that person to have a sense of power and control in that moment with you over how they want to proceed. So if you're hearing someone disclose this experience to you, taking a moment to take a breath for yourself, step back and ask those questions of, how can I support you or what do you need and being available for them to support them along the way? Because just because they don't want to seek out resources right now in this moment doesn't mean that a few months from now or the next semester that they're not ready to do that. So they might change their mind and come back to you and you can be that backboard for them and really support them in their process of healing. I think that's awesome advice. It's so hard to hear those sad stories. And oftentimes we want to be problem solvers to just be present and support that person can be so difficult. I feel like bystanders also have another role 
if you see something, say something. So can you speak a little bit about that as well? So bystander can be a really pivotal role in preventing sexual violence from actually happening. Courtney mentioned, see something, say something. When we do prevention work from a bystander intervention standpoint, we take the approach of giving students the skills that they need to intervene. So a lot of the work I use are the three Ds of bystander intervention. So distract, delegate, or direct. And oftentimes students will be presented with situations that might be happening and ask how they would intervene and what feels most comfortable for them. Because based on your personality or identities that you may hold, um, or just your knowledge of the resources on campus, you might have a different comfort level on how you want to intervene. Maybe you don't feel comfortable directly going up to the person and saying like, hey, that wasn't cool what you just did, or this looks off to me, let me intervene and say something. Maybe you ask a friend who you know is confident doing that, or you go to a RA and ask for help. So those are some differences there. And also defer, and that is to, again, kind of empower the bystander that if there's not anything they can do in that moment, particularly if it feels unsafe for them, to be able to defer and think about and go back to, um, because ultimately we want the bystanders to be safe as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that can sometimes limit the traditional bystander intervention programs, sometimes we see that the assumption is that uh, we frame cisgender men as potential perpetrators and cisgender women as potential victims in it. Whereas what we are trying to do is focus in on how everyone, regardless of their identity, has a role to play in bystander intervention. However, your identity may also impact your ability to intervene and how you would intervene. I make fun of myself a lot when I do these trainings, but I'm five foot tall. Like I'm not physically intimidating anybody. I am not someone that's going to be able to like slyly intervene and make sure that they are okay just by like my physically intimidating presence. But there are ways that me or others like me can also intervene, whether it's before, during, or after the incident being able to just notice signs right away, being able to recognize that situation can be huge. I know sometimes that there is uncomfortability with possibly just getting a situation wrong, reading the situation wrong. But I think that's something that we need to recognize as, you know, the worst thing that could happen in a situation where you read that wrong is that you, you're a little embarrassed. But I've never personally, if someone tried to check in on me in an instance where they weren't sure if I was comfortable or not. I never thought ill of that person for just being concerned about it. So I try to remember that in instances where maybe I would want to intervene. I think one, as a community, we want to be able to overcome that embarrassment. Also just recognize that, yes, you know what, your identity, how you identify gender-wise, what your racial or ethnic background, how you physically look, can all be factors that can impact how you intervene. But it doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to intervene at all. I think from a student leader standpoint and professional standpoint, it is important when we are doing bystander examples and having students practice with this to be intentionally inclusive of 
diverse identities or um, LGBT community examples, rather than just, you know, nonchalantly trying to like use gender neutral names or use like generalized situ situations. Being intentionally inclusive is more impactful because then students see themselves represented in the scenarios that are actually happening versus this idea of something that may or may not be an experience that they would actually have. So when you're doing the actual work, being intentional and having those situations that students can play out for themselves and actually see themselves in is really important. I think these are all super helpful for students, especially if they see something and figure out what the best way to intervene for them is. You brought up a good point of there's a lot of assumptions around interpersonal violence and domestic violence and people just kind of assume things. I feel like maybe that's where we should talk about next. In terms of looking at who experiences interpersonal violence, oftentimes the default is thinking of a white cisgender straight woman. So having to be intentional in breaking up that narrative and demonstrating that males also experience sexual violence. Same-sex couples also experience interpersonal violence. Having those examples, demonstrating how power dynamics play out in different cultures, because a lot of times in different cultures, there's different ideas of what relationships look like and what power dynamics are. So again, just including those examples is so important so that if someone experiences violence, they're not sitting there thinking like, oh, this shouldn't have happened to me because I'm not a white, straight, cisgender woman. Or, oh, I can't utilize these resources because I'm not capable of experiencing violence because of my identities. So it's really important to break up that narrative and provide resources specific to those populations so they can see themselves represented and get the support they need. Oh, absolutely. Populations that aren't perceived as the typical victim, whether it's men or partners in same-sex couples, trans or gender non-conforming individuals, or even like elderly or how they can appropriately respond or seek help if they're the survivors in the situation. And some services may not know how to appropriately take care of or treat someone in one of those populations. So I think it's definitely a conversation that needs to continue to be had, particularly when you are a professional in the field, if you don't know how to serve people in the, your community that may fit into one of these norms. We want to be able to have as inclusive of treatment as possible. I think it's so important to be talking about how this affects everyone. I think we do have this stereotype that it only affects one piece of the population, but anybody can be a, a victim to violence and anybody can experience this. I also wanted to talk a little bit about like consent. I think there's a huge misunderstanding that you can't take away consent once you've given it. So I feel like it's an important conversation to have as well. I always say that consent is a continuous process. It's not just something that you say at the beginning that you consent for something to happen or you consent to a certain action. And, you know, there's no other conversations to be had for 
the rest of the time that this is happening to you. So consent is a continuous process. It's something that you can continue to give or something that you can take away at any point because it is your personal self, your personal autonomy. And if you originally felt that you were okay with something happening and that does not happen and you are no longer okay with it or you're no longer comfortable with it, you have that right. That is your personal self. You have the right to your own personal autonomy and you have the right to be comfortable at all times. So if you are no longer comfortable in that situation, you are allowed to take away that consent. Totally agree. It's a continual process and it really should be a conversation that's kind of ongoing and happening. So if someone decides that they're okay with making out, you know, having a conversation before just assuming into the next step or bringing it up, right? We don't want to just assume that the other piece about consent is that when we think about consent, it's important to think about both people that are engaging in whatever they're engaging in are consenting individuals and have their own autonomy and self-determination on what they want that sexual experience to look like. So if you can acknowledge that and it's and not just look at what you're wanting to get out of the experience, that's going to help lead to a better experience for both people where consent is at the center of that experience. So I think that that's often left out too. When we talk about consent, we say like it needs to be an affirm- affirmative yes, which is super important. But let's take it a step further and talk about how we can get those yeses along the way and acknowledge that, again, we're both trying to get something out of this experience of what is what are we trying to get and how can we help each other get there? Absolutely. I like the idea that you were talking about with uh, taking that a step further and thinking about how we continue to get to those yeses in a way that makes the experience enjoyable for all parties involved. I think that's something really important that this should already be a part of the discussions that we're having in how we frame consent. Thank you so much for speaking about that. I think we also need to talk about unhealthy relationships versus healthy relationships. What does that look like? How do people know if they're in a bad situation? Like what are some of those signs? Healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships, there are a lot of dynamics that go into both. I'll start by talking about unhealthy. There's a difference between an unhealthy relationship and an abusive relationship. An unhealthy relationship can lead to an abusive relationship, but an unhealthy relationship doesn't necessarily mean it's abusive. And there are steps you can take together to be healthy. Being someone who does prevention work, I work with the One Love Foundation. They are a organization that work within the United States, but they're currently working on expanding. They were founded because the founder's daughter actually lost her life to domestic violence on a college campus. And in retrospect, they realized that there were signs along the way that this was an unhealthy relationship and abusive. And they wanted to share with younger communities how to identify those signs. So they actually have 10 signs of a healthy and 10 signs of an unhealthy relationship to give people the language around what those things are. And I think that's a key starting point. We often don't even have the language to label this is healthy and this is unhealthy. So first off is giving the communities that language and then giving them ways where they can practice using that language and identifying that language and using it in their own life. 
and being able to really know what feels good for them is super important. And I think often not talked about either because what might feel okay for me in a relationship and feel good might not feel okay for someone else and vice versa. So again, having the language and the skills to have those conversations and check-ins is really important when we're talking about healthy and unhealthy relationships. I think it is important that we differentiate between what a healthy and what an unhealthy and an abusive relationship is. There are sometimes there are just people that are not right for each other in that moment. And that would be more in my head is a unhealthy relationship. It's just sometimes maybe that relationship just isn't clicking. They might have differences of opinion in certain areas, but just something where there's a level of incompatibility for some reason, but that's something that you can either break off or that you can work towards making a healthy relationship. But with an abusive relationship, there's a lot more to it. There is a factor of control, a lack of respect, I would say is another big factor in that. And this can be a physical control or just an emotional or mental manipulation taking away resources from someone, such as uh, monitoring their phone calls or monitoring their finances, controlling who they can or can't see in their friend groups or even their family. So I think that's uh, definitely one major sign that we as a community should be really on the lookout for is the level of control or manipulation that would play into an abusive relationship. Yeah, and just to take that a step further too, absolutely no one deserves to experience violence. So if there's any sort of violence in a relationship that's abusive and should be addressed, then that person should get the support that they need because again, no one deserves violence and no one has a right to put violence onto someone else. Same thing with the control aspect, because oftentimes when people aren't experiencing physical violence in a relationship, they're like, oh, you know, I'm not experiencing that. So maybe I'll just stay in this relationship because I'm not experiencing the physical violence for it to be abusive. But if someone's controlling you, like Giovanna said, your finances, who you can talk to, isolating you, and your control over your decisions and how you're living your life is taken away, that's a form of violence and no one deserves to have their life taken away and their control of their life taken away. So those things are really important. And if someone's experiencing that, they should certainly look to get help. And there's a lot of barriers and challenges for getting support from a abusive relationship. And sometimes it takes people a couple of times of trying to leave before they're able to do so. So it's really important to be patient and supportive along the way. And again, reinforce those resources that are available if someone is experiencing that. That's a great point that it does take time for people to leave. And I think people really struggle at understanding that sometimes. Can both of you talk a little bit more about why people stay longer than maybe they should? I mean, there's so many reasons why that can happen. There can be stigma and shame around leaving or leaving and then going back and then realizing that you want to leave again. That's not every situation, but it can happen. But there just that stigma that can come around a failed relationship or what is perceived as a failed relationship. I would say that it's more so a 
call for yourself that is, you know, to your betterment. There's definitely some stigma around it. Um, and also just what I was saying before, if there is this control around resources, you may not just have the ability to leave or the perceived ability to leave, especially if you don't have your financial resources with you, you don't have the social support you once had, you know, from having con that control over uh, your friends and family of who you could and could not keep in contact with. Some people, if they have children with their partner, that might have a severe impact on their ability to leave. They could be afraid of losing their children or having their children separated from their parents. And I probably only just said a very small amount of the reasons why individuals may decide to uh, uh, be hesitant to leave a relationship or leave and then why they may choose to go back to a relationship or why it may not just initially happen and work the first time. There can also be some danger around leaving about um, your fear for your safety of how your partner is going to react if you do leave. That's just probably a small amount of the reasons why that can happen as well. There are a lot of factors at play and it's not a one size fits all and there's not one correct decision for all survivors of abusive relationships either. So it's uh, it can be very easy to judge from the outside looking in, but there are so many reasons why this is such a difficult decision to make. Yeah, Giovanna, you brought up some really great examples of why someone might have a difficult time leaving. And I think it just speaks to that it's a very personal experience. So, you know, there could be so many reasons why a person may be fearful of leaving or feel like they're unable to. A typical thing that happens too when domestic violence is happening is there's a cycle of violence. So it's not like someone gets in a relationship and the person's abusive and is, you know, physically harming them right off of the bat. There's often a honeymoon phase where things feel really, really good. Um, and then maybe an incident happens and at first it's just raising of voices and, and throwing something. You know, you write that off as a one-time thing and, and then feels things, things feel really good again. Kind of recycle through and each time the incident escalates further and further and potentially could become more violent. So it's not like in the, and sometimes it's easier for people to focus on the parts that feel really good or not want to leave those parts that feel really good. So recognizing that it is a cycle and because within that cycle, again, that survivor is experiencing a loss of power and control, it's super important that they have the power and control to decide when they leave and how they leave. Ways you can say like, you certainly can say, hey, I'm, I'm really concerned for your safety and I would love it if you would, you know, go to counseling and I can walk you over there. Is that something you'd be interested in? But know that they might say no and, and that's okay. And, and they have the ability to make that decision. I think that also just goes back to the conversations we were talking about and how someone can be a good bystander as well in these instances. It's showing concern for someone, but also just not telling them what to do, but maybe offering to assist or help in any way if that's possible for you. It's a very personal experience. It's not something that is a one size fits all situation for anyone. And there are 
many factors like that that play into why this can be such a difficult and sometimes frustrating experience. But yes, that patience and personable care, I would say, goes helping someone that might be in that situation. Oftentimes, you know, when we're talking about this, it sounds like a lot of gloom and doom. So I just want to emphasize that if someone is experiencing interpersonal violence or has experienced sexual assault, there is resources available. And maybe we can get back to this toward the end of the podcast, but there are certainly resources and ways of healing and overcoming and feeling super empowered again. So I think it's important to portray while we're having these conversations. But the thing I wanted to loop back to was safety planning. If you're someone who's in an abusive relationship or a bystander who's you, you know, witnessing this or having a friend disclose to you, if you're going to break up with someone, you can create a safety plan around how you're going to do it in the way that's safe for you and for anyone else who might be involved. Oftentimes, there's this pressure to break up with people in person and, you know, have this long conversation or what may have you. But if that's not safe for you, maybe you do it over the phone while you're at a family's house. Or maybe you do it in person, but you have like your dad out in the crowd or you have people kind of by and on call and around to support you so that you can feel safe from removing yourself from that unsafe situation. That is so important to remember that there is healing after this and there is, you know, empowerment back. You can take back that control. So thank you for that as well. I think we talked really a lot about some of the warning signs, but what also shows like a good, healthy relationship? What does that look like? We actually did a poll for some of our followers on Instagram before asking them what they felt a healthy relationship looked like. Some of the signs that came up regularly were instances of respect or specifically mutual respect for one another, non-judgmental, whether that's responses or just a non-judgment attitude with your partner, a sense of humor is always nice. A relationship that's based on friendship and established boundaries. So recognizing that you have freedom to exist outside of that relationship. Yes, your relationship is important to you, but you have other things, other hobbies, other parts of your life, whether it's your job or your family or any hobbies that you enjoy. You have that freedom to have an identity outside of the relationship and open communication between you and your partner or partners something that you're able to establish with your partner at that time and continue to do it, be able to continue to have this open communication with your partner. Sometimes you may not be having the best conversations, but that open communication is still there. And then sometimes you're having great conversations. Yeah, I think those are all really great points. Um, As I mentioned, one, love does have the 10 signs of an unhealthy relationship, but they also have the 10 signs of a healthy relationship. Some of those are open communication, trust, comfortable pace, respect, kindness, fun, having fun, honesty, accountability for one's actions, and healthy conflict, because inevitably, you're not going to agree on absolutely everything. So how can you talk about that in a healthy way? And I think another just good way to check in if the relationship is healthy or not 
for your own self is to check in with like, how does this feel for me? Like, do I feel good? Am I energized by this relationship? Is this adding to my life in a positive way? That's a really great way to check in. Adding to your life because you want to have your own life outside of the relationship too. You don't want to rely on the relationship for your happiness and feeling fulfilled and content in all of those things. And then taking that a step further, if you're feeling that way, having that open communication with your partner or partners and saying, how does this feel for you? What do you want in this relationship? Oftentimes in longer term relationships, if you've been together, you know, five plus years, remembering to have those conversations are really important to keep the relationship healthy because inevitably both partners are going to change as life goes on and your relationship's going to change. So making sure it's by communicating and and kind of gut checking with those key terms. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's so great for us to understand how to check in with our partners and understand what we want and what they want as well. To end the podcast, we should talk about some resources in the community. The Counseling Center is definitely a resource where we offer services for free for students. So you can call or email, or you can even go on the portal and set up an appointment with us. As the YWCA of Western Massachusetts, we are the local DBSA agency. We offer free confidential services, which include individual counseling, support groups, medical advocacy, court advocacy, police advocacy, and our 24-7 now offers free confidential rapid HIV testing for anyone that is interested in that service. The iMatter Network is looking at the linkages between HIV and intimate partner violence. This could be a service that you can get by yourself outside of your relationship or relationships. So it's something that I just wanted to highlight for a second that this was an initiative that the iMatter Network brought to the YWCA. It's a finger prick sample and the results, uh, you get your results in 20 minutes. And we also offer case management services before and after the fact. We have appointments available on Tuesdays and Thursdays at the YWCA uh, headquarters, which is 1 Close Street at Springfield, Mass. And the zip code 01118. And then for a screening or referral for any of our services, whether it's the iMatter Network services or just the YWCA in general, you can contact our YWCA hotline at either 413-733-7100 or 800-796-8711. As someone who has worked at AIC and works on college campuses, I can speak a little bit about some further resources I know in Springfield, there's also a local Planned Parenthood that students can utilize. Oftentimes, Planned Parenthood will come to AIC campus doing tabling and things like that. And also Tapestry, which is a similar organization to Planned Parenthood. Both, if you look them up on Google, there's local ones to Springfield that you could get connected with. And they offer similar resources in terms of testing for SDIs you know, identity-specific resources, specifically for the LGBTQ community, and just general information regarding consent and healthy relationships and those types of things. Um, Additionally, on a college campus, you typically have two types of employees. So one would be someone who's confidential, 
that means you could go to them and tell them anything and it stays between you and them. And that's the resource like the counseling center. And then every other employee is what is called a responsible employee or mandated reporter. So you could go to them for support. If you disclosed an experience of sexual violence, they would have to tell the Title IX office. And what that means is Title IX would then reach out to you and ask what you would like to do to move forward. The only time that they would move forward without you wanting to move forward is if there was a hostile environment. So meaning the campus would be unsafe if they did not move forward. You know, I know a lot of people who still work at AIC and they're super supportive. So if you felt like you needed to go to someone, you could really utilize any of the people who are there. Same things with your RAs. It would be the same process. They would call their RD and get you that support. And if you wanted another confidential resource that is not on AIC's camp, there's a national rape crisis network called RAIN. And you could contact their 24-7 confidential hotline, which is 1-800-656-4673. And what's great about RAIN is that because they're national, they have access to area-specific resources or identity-specific resources. So if you were looking for those, you could call them and they could connect you with those further resources. Thank you so much for being willing to participate in this and taking time out of your day to talk with me. And I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Yeah, I agree. This was a great opportunity. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. For more content like this, follow us. And if you like what you heard, share with your friends and family. We'll see you next time.